Geekville Radio. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the mayor of Geekville, continuing with our October theme and Halloween theme going across all of our shows. Each show we've done this month, since it is October, the month of Halloween, all of our shows have a Halloween theme to them. And this one's no different, which means it's also a little bit different, if that makes any sense. Uh, We are doing the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. And I've said before that no person would not be considered as long as they didn't fit what probably the mainstream would call as an as an a-lister so you know no, no superman or anything like that but we were open to heroes villains franchises titles and in this case we are going to induct our first real person into the lesser known geek hall of fame and that is forrest j ackerman and there's a lot of people out there i think who have heard the name but may not truly understand who he was and uh what he did and i'll pass it over to my usual co-host crazy train jonathan bullock in the soft padded cell now is it fair to say that he might have been one of the world's worst fanboys or i believe i also referred to forrest as the real life jimmy olsen because of all the friends he made does that sound fair to you it does and before we get going all aboard ladies and gentlemen it's three more days to Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Three more days to Halloween. Silver, Silver Shamrock. Shamrock. So now that that song's in your head, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> and we'll be in there probably until Halloween Day gets here. Yes, he was the ultimate fanboy. Um, uh, I, I, of course, suggested this because I'm more the horror guy than Seth is. Um, Seth, I think you had told me when I suggested you had heard the name, but like in your description, you didn't really know what, who he exactly was or what all he had done. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I had seen his names in books, you know, like like Asimov and stuff like that. Some of those novels that I had read and uh, comics and such, where he might get like a special thanks. That that was where right. I had heard the name from. Right. I had heard the name uh, originally from I want to say Fangoria magazine, and later on we'll talk about how pivotal I think forest was in the the building of those fanzines that we we have now and of course we both enjoyed it's like you know star log fangoria stuff like that when we were growing up uh but uh i did a little research on him when i was younger of course this is before the internet and just found out that this dude was like you said the ultimate fanboy he lived the fanboy dream uh he was a, a the biggest supporter of and I think chronicler of just early sci-fi, early horror, and and I, I don't think I don't think either one of those genres in either print or you know video are the same today without his involvement. That's just always been my opinion, which is why I suggested him. And uh, now that you have done your your due diligence on your research, I think you see what I was talking about. Yeah, definitely, and he, I think it's one of those things where you could kind of say the art imitating life uh, and mm-hmm. obviously i've been a fan of science fiction forever because it's it's great for the mind or the brain but you also look at 
a lot of the stuff that he did that is now commonplace in the gay community. I mean, not just fanzines. I mean, you know, he, he was basically reading magazines and making fanzines in like, you know, the thirties or so. And mm-hmm. uh, when he went to the uh, convention in New York city, it was the first uh, sci-fi convention in New York city. Now they call it Worldcon, which is, I mean, San Diego comic con is probably bigger, but Worldcon has been around longer. He actually went to the first, Worldcon in 1939 and wore a sci-fi costume for it. So you could say that he was, you know, decades before the term came along, you could say he was the first cosplayer. You know, yeah. now yeah. <laughs> really a convention of any size, you find somebody that's doing cosplay. Now, I think the uh picture of him which I'll put in the show notes at geekleradio.com I don't know if it's anything in particular because it says uh, futuristic costumes, like one word in mm-hmm. quotation marks. So it may have just kind of been a- an attempt at making a sci-fi outfit. Because I remember going way back to when I was in junior high school, I think, and we were going to have a dress like the future day. And I actually got the prize, which wasn't really a prize. It was like a candy bar or something like that. And... The prize that I had that I was walking around is I, I just took the innards of my dad's security guard uniform, you know, the kind of puffy thing that you might put in. And it's not really for armor or anything like that, but it was like uh, the innards that you put into a jacket that, you know, when you want to turn it mm-hmm. into a winter jacket instead of a spring jacket. Yeah, like like polyfill. Yeah, exactly. So so I, I wore that, and, which had a zipper on it and all that. And then I wore a trench coat over it. And it was influenced, I think, probably from the the cartoon Cops which is a sci-fi cop show, which only ran for a season or two. Sounds like and, it had a little bit of Blade, Blade Runner in it as yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, a little exactly. Bit. Yeah, so I, but now that's nothing like what Mr. Ackman's wearing in that picture, but I think it's that type of thing. It was like, okay, well, I want to dress like the future, so this is what I'm going to do. It seems like it was that, that type of thing. And of course, 1939, you're talking, we don't have spaceships yet. We don't have jets. Uh, you know, I mean, there were, there were probably rockets, but, you know, not, not anything guided. So, I mean, really, the only you know, sci-fi that I mean, when you talk sci-fi from that era, you're talking, you know, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, of course, you know, mm-hmm. which was still years before that in a silent film, and like we talked about on our Flash Gordon induction, think about Flash Gordon at that time. Yeah, he was sci-fi and he was in space, but it still had a real Robin Hood kind of swashbuckling look and feel to it, didn't it? Right, right, yeah. So I mean, it's it's, and we're also talking 1939, uh, the materials and 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 the that we have available now with plastics and things like that. Those weren't available back then combined with the fact that cosplay has become so popular that it's its own billion dollar industry in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, right now with it being Halloween and costumes being big, look, I mean, party city, which is a massive, you know, niche specialty store. They were going to go out of business if they didn't get into the Halloween thing, what they did about 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it saved their company. They make enough money in October on costumes and things like that that people use for cosplay to stay, you know, in 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 the red for the rest of the eleven months of the year. So he didn't have any of that either. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. Like I said, he was the he was the first cosplayer essentially. You know, and and you think cosplayers get weird looks now? Imagine what you got back in nineteen thirty nine, getting on the subway in New York and in the outfit like that. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think it's gotten to the point, like you said, with cosplay becoming its own genre. I mean, you know, it, it's essentially become mainstream, I think. Maybe not to oh, yeah. the level of, you know, like the Oscars or something like that. But every year at C2E2, they have the World Cosplay Finals. And that's one of yeah. my favorite things to go to each year. I mean, there there are there are professional cosplayers now. This is how they make their living, mm-hmm. going to conventions every weekend and winning these contests. And they have YouTube channels and, and social media, you know, uh, uh, footprint out there. And think about it. They're making a, enough money off of playing dress up 24-7, 365 to live off of it. That's that's kind of kind of fascinating if you think about it. And yeah. like you said, he's one of the first. Now, that is, of course, the stuff he would do at conventions and such. One thing that crossed my mind when I was reading about him was, okay, well, what, what did he do for a living? And uh, any listeners that are thinking this, who might have heard the name and wondered, uh, his main job, uh, I, I guess you could call it, you know, what, what the career part of his job was, is he worked as a literary agent. And what a literary agent is, is they're essentially representatives for writers when it comes to other mediums. I think that's probably the best way I can put it. In other words, they might be the person that might talk to a film producer or a magazine publisher or something like that for what the writer might want to have for that. And you know, some of the names that he worked with over the years, uh, Ed Wood, yes, that Ed Wood, uh, and... Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> was that a tank or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That stuff's easy to. T- uh, thankfully, that stuff's easy to t- take out and post. But, um, and he also worked with people like Ray Harryhausen and such. So, all those names that I just listed off, we probably would have never considered entering into the lesser known geek hall of fame. And he worked with all of them. I think that's. Uh, a perfect way to sum up his career. Yeah, and you, and you think back once again. You have to put yourself in this place and time. In the 30s and 40s, sci-fi, okay, horror had had its 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 heyday. You know, it was in the late 30s, early 40s through Universal and film. Um, sci-fi was still not a very beloved, you know, uh, genre of film or literature. Horror mm-hmm. really wasn't either. Because you know that stuff had come and gone with Universal, and it was just a short period there. I mean, we go from from you know Bela Lugosi's Dracula to Albert and Costello meet meet Frankenstein. What in like six, seven, eight, eight years? So it's, it's, like, not yeah. long, it's not a long. It's not a long. It's not a long shelf life. Is what I'm saying. The vast majority of how you, if you were a sci-fi or horror, mystery thriller writer in that era. You had to go to these pulp magazines that we've talked about before, like in the shadow and and that episode, or you had to go to comic writers, uh, you know, or you had to go to um, that's just what you had to do to get your work published. And it was a burgeoning industry. And then this is just what you had to do if you were a creator of sci fi, horror, true crime, mystery, fantasy. And here's Forrest J. Ackerman, who's going to. People who are not fans of this, who are not, don't understand it, don't realize there's a fan base for it, and convincing them to put money into it, with the con, with the idea, hey, don't this 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 guy, this gal, their stuff's gonna sell. You're gonna make money on this. That's always what it boils down to in these kinds of things. It's about money. You know, it's a business. And mm-hmm. when you're talking the names that you listed, you know, the Isaac Isomoffs, the Ray Bradburys, 
all all Scientology jokes aside, L. Ron Hubbard, some you didn't name, Carl Sagan, uh, Harlan Ellison. These are you know, other people I know that he worked with at times. Do, do we have what we call geekdom without some of these names? No, no. I mean, it, it fits right in when we talk about uh, inducting people into the Lesson Geek Hall of Fame. It'll, they may not be the A-listers, but they may have influenced the A-listers. And you know, this is a perfect right. example of that. I love Harlan Ellison, okay? I love his writing, but from doing interviews, he's a very intelligent man, but he can be a bit opinionated and a bit off-putting. And I'm, I'm pretty sure if he went in to pitch his own stuff, whether it be sci-fi or horror, because he's done both, you know, uh, he probably is going to be met with some resistance by the suit types because mm-hmm. of, of his personality. Here's Forrest J. Ackerman. He can go in and, and he's the middleman, essentially. You know, he's the guy that can... He's he's the the you know the the guy who can convince the people who aren't fans that there's a market and, and to put money up for it. That's amazing right. to me. And, and I mean, if if we're we're going to talk about a lot of other things that Forrest did, but just his literary agent career alone and all the names that he worked with by itself merits induction into a Geek Hall of Fame, in my opinion. I mean, his personal collection of stuff that was at the Acker Mansion, as he calls it, I mean, that is now part of the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a couple other things about early works here that kind of set the stage. Uh, he was watching science fiction films even back before there were uh, talking movies, back when they were silent films. Uh, he would read the Amazing Stories magazines when they were first published in the 20s. And yes, that is the same Amazing Stories that Steven Spielberg uh, adopted to turn into that TV show uh, in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Now, his early works, kind of getting into writing, there was a fanzine called The Time Traveler, and there was just a science fiction magazine. And he had submitted stories to that magazine. And the two of the guys that worked... On that magazine, as far as writing and providing art, were Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the men who created Superman. So mm-hmm. Ackerman can say that he worked with Siegel and Schuster before they created Superman, which is pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. In fact, there was a short story called Reign of the Superman, a singular, and this was before Clark Kent had been created. This was in the, the mid-30s. And it was a short story about a man who gains powers and then loses them. And that got uh, published as that. And obviously, since Siegel and Schuster used that name first, they were able to use the name again when they created Clark Kent. But that that name, Reign of the the Superman, DC Comics kind of paid tribute to that when they did the whole Death of Superman story in the, uh, the early to mid-90s, when they had the four wannabe Superman, you, you might say, was Superboy, Steel, Cyborg, and uh, Eradicator, They uh, that was called Reign of the Supermen, plural. And all this time, you know, they, I didn't really know that that was what they were paying tribute to by, by calling it that. I just thought it was a cool name. And right. one other thing about early works here, one of his pen names, and th- there were several. I mean, he, he used to like spell his name for us with like the number four, but he would use a pen name called Dr. Acula, which of course, when you abbreviate <laughs> doctor with the period and put Acula after that, it spells out Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think him and Stan Lee would have got along. I, fa- I, fa- I think they were friends or at least casual acquaintances. I, I'd be I surprised read- if they didn't know each other. 
Yeah, uh, they and quite frankly, they they look similar. They're Forrest's a little. Stan Lee was not a big man. Forrest was a bit on the tall side, probably about six one. But they had the same, you know, like mustache, the same kind of rose tinted glasses, and the same hairline. Mm-hmm. So they could almost pass for brothers. I think uh, Rod, you could throw Roger Corman in there too when he has a mustache. The three of them could be triplets. But I, I digress. Um, yeah, he, he where I got into my first not real big knowledge of, of Forrest was from the fanzines you're talking about. He did several, but the one that I remember was first published in the 50s. And I don't think it was a periodical like we have now with Starlog and Fangoria where they come out like a monthly or whatever. They were more like quarterly or whatever, but he he was he helped to create and edited a an early horror fanzine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And I think the original cover was the Boris Karloff Frankenstein's monster fitting, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was an homage uh, that it covered like uh, this magazine covered, you know, the old universal era of horror, how they did the makeup effects and and, and how they adapted the stories to movies. And uh, they have even done some, you know, in later years. And I think the first time I remember it was in a Fangoria where they were talking about this old magazine essentially being the template for what Fangoria became in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, Tony Temponi, who was the longtime editor-in-chief of Fangoria, has, has no, yet another name that says, I was influenced by Forrest J. Ackerman. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's we try to do with modern horror movies and Fangoria what he did with the classics back in that. So it's... it's uh, there's yet another. We've talked about cosplay. Now he's kind of helping to create fanzines, too. You're starting to see he, this guy really has his fingers in every pie of, of what we just take for granted as geekdom nowadays. So mm-hmm. that was my first my first running into him. Um, I think if you were to talk to Forrest himself, it, one of the greatest things that came out of his fandom was the fact that he met his wife through, through this stuff. Uh, she was a few years older than him, and she was a sci-fi writer as well. And... Uh, Met her, I think it. I think at one of the early world cons you're talking about, where he did the, the early cosplay. And she cosplayed with him. So, um, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was. I think it was every aspect of his life was about geekdom, about sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mystery. That just, it's what he loved, and he li- he lived the geek's dream to be able to make a living out of the stuff that we sit here and do a podcast for fun for. You know, <laughs> right. Right, and he mar- he did marry late. I believe it was in mm-hmm. the 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 fifty the, the maybe late forties or early fifties. So, right, you know uh, that that's something I'm sure a lot of geeks can uh, <laughs> you, uh, 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 you know you can relate, per- relate to that. Relate to that, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, well, I mean, he's if, if he's the ultimate geek, he's just showing y'all how to do it. You stick to it, you'll find that one good girl's into the same stuff you're into. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, an interesting thing, since we are doing. We are talking about Forrest because of his ties to the horror communities and this being Halloween-themed uh, lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the famous or rather infamous name of Anton Shandor LeVay. Yes. Of course, he is the – for those that don't know, he is the founder of the, of the Church of Satan. Uh, he was the man who penned the Satanic Bible. Uh, he was – if you were a headbanger like I was in the 80s, you, he did a lot, a lot of media – during uh, the satanic panic of the 80s. That, that's yeah. probably where you first heard of him, wasn't it? Yeah, this is about the time where they'd be talking about, uh, oh, yeah, if you play Led Zeppelin backwards, you hear prayers to Satan or something like that, you know? Right, right, exactly. 
Yeah, you, you read the chick tracks that playing Dungeons and Dragons was a pathway to pathway to, to state, Satan worship. But right. I, I digress. For those that don't know, LeVay did not start the Church of Satan until the I think it was like sixty three or sixty four. He in 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 a, in a in a house that they called the I think they called the the Black Beauty or something. It was a big black house that sat up on a hill in San Francisco. Uh, by this point, Forrest was living in San Francisco, but before Anton LeVay started the Church of Satan, before he wrote the Satanic Bible, he used to have weekly get-togethers of about 20 people at the house there in San Francisco. I think it was on Thursday nights. And it was not it was not like a, a, a black mass or anything. It was just intellectuals uh, that discussed esoterics, metaphysics, religion, sci-fi. It, it was, you know, uh, it, was, it was smart people talking smart stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And he hosted these because whether you like LeVay or not, and you have, and I understand he's a very polarizing figure. The guy was smart. Okay, you're not, you can't, you can't deny the guy was 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 intelligent. Um, Forrest J. Ackerman was one of the early attendees at those things. It was pretty much a regular, along with politicians, local politicians there in San Francisco, and uh, Fritz Lieber, who um, is a Fritz Lieber. For those that don't know, is he pretty much essentially created. What we consider the the sword and sorcery fantasy novel, he influenced like Conan the Barbarian. His biggest story was an ongoing storyline of two characters called Farfid, who was the prototype barbarian warrior, and the Gray Mouser, who was the prototype cloaked thief rogue character in D anD. d So much so that right after Wizards of the Coast bought the rights to D anD. d from TSR, they bought the rights to Farfid and Great Farfid and Gray Mouser from Fritz. And incorporated them to the point where they are now canon in, in the Greyhawk campaign setting. So he was. This is where Forrest J. Ackerman met him. So you know, I just thought with was being Halloween. That's interesting. I'm so. I'm not saying Forrest J. Ackerman was a Satanist. Please don't don't. <laughs> mind. If matter of fact, Forrest J. Ackerman was very very open about he was an atheist. He didn't believe in any kind of higher being. You know, yeah. uh, but it but it does seem like you know, just to. Uh, make sure we we uh, get it out there. I don't think he was opposed to people having an organized religion. Just wasn't his no. thing. So you know, as, no, as I like no. to say, tolerance. No. You know, right, right. I think he, I think Forrest was a very open minded guy. He liked to think, and Anton Lavey, for whatever his purposes were, was leading this group, and it had a lot of the prominent intellectuals in the San Francisco area. I understand the attraction to going, and like I point out, this is before Lavey, you know, adopted the. The, the the over the top image with the goat you know the goatee and the you know the the eyebrows and everything it's before this you know that came years later not years later but about five years later he was just it was just this weird dude who hosted these parties where you talked about things like I I think Ron L Ron Hubbard was someone maybe that's maybe maybe that's where Scientology came from. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, personal note: Scientology to me is because L Ron Hubbard. How, as good a literary agent as as Forrest was, some of the stuff that L. Ron Hubbard wrote, Forrest couldn't convince anybody to buy it. So L. Ron created a religion so he could get a tax write off on, on publishing stuff that nobody else would publish. But I digress. I'll get on myself. That's my opinion. But, and yes, Tom Cruise, you can send me your thousand word blog post about how wrong I am. I don't care. I'm entitled to my opinion. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I hate Scientologists. Uh, I'm just saying you know everybody's entitled to their own beliefs. Just just not for me. It is what it is, right? So, you know, 
Tom Cruise, send me your thousand word blog post. I won't be offended. I, you have every right to defend your beliefs. Uh, I just like to, to pick. I don't hate Scientologists. And, and all f- joking aside, L. Ron Hubbard, jokes aside, was a very, very important sci-fi writer. So you can't take that away right. from the man. You know, with it just being Halloween, I thought that would be an interesting thing to bring up that, you know, here's the guy who would go on to become the, the leader of the Church of Satan. And those were the kind of circles. I mean, he he covered the gamut, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. He's, yeah. he's hanging out with people like that, but he's at the same time hanging out with, you know, people like, you know, people like Isaac Isomoff and influencing people like Spielberg and Lucas and everybody in between. He's just a fascinating guy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking about... Uh, writers, you you were talking about being in uh, California, and the uh, he was in the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, which apparently they just kind of met at a restaurant and, and discussed stuff. But some of the people that would have been part of this, you have uh, Robert A. Heinlein, you know, so you, you know his, his name kind of speaks for so a lot a lot of books he did. Um, Those that don't know, he wrote the Puppet Masters, which was the basis for both the original and the remake version of Evasion of the Body Snatchers. So, and yeah, he, and he also wrote the uh, Starship Troopers book. That you know, yes, they, he did. Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, Emil Pataya, or is it Pataja? Uh, Lee Brackett, who uh, I think ardent Star Wars fans will remember, she actually her final work was submitting a draft for Empire Strikes Back. And uh, but but she died uh, two years before Empire Strikes Back came out. For and, horror fans, that the Lee Bracket you're speaking of was homaged mm-hmm. by John Carpenter by 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 naming the sheriff of Haddonfield Lee Bracket in the Halloween franchise. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and uh, another one, Jack Williamson or John Stewart Williamson, and he, he was another one of those kind of uh, pioneering type uh, type writers. So again, we're talking all these legendary people that he befriended and or worked with i think at one point he was even president of that group wasn't he did your research show you that i am not sure i it would not surprise me but uh uh, i don't have that confirmed at the moment well i would think with 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 force you know championing these old horror movies and sci-fi stuff with things like the fanzines and the time period we're talking now uh, we were talking off mic essentially genre genre you know, uh, fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, were pretty much con- contained to the pages of comic books, pulp magazines, and, and novels and short stories up until about the 60s. Uh, you had that brief run with, you know, horror, universal, late 30s, early 40s. You had that brief run of sci-fi stuff in the 50s that was really just veiled red scare. I think we've agreed on that before, too. You oh, know, yeah. and fear of, of, of atomic of atomic power and what we were getting into as, as, as you know, humanity was getting into at the time. But you have Psycho that comes out in 1960, 10, 11 years later, 70, 71, 2001, A Space Odyssey comes out. All of a sudden, sci-fi and horror are actually legitimate subgenres of Hollywood now that major studios will tackle. And I think Forrest being in the Southern California at that time probably had a lot to do with that. What say ye? I think it's I think it's very possible. Now, I had said that I think Star Wars may have been what made science fiction like truly mainstream, just because of all the money it made. But then, when you think about it, stuff like Planet of the Apes or uh, you know two thousand one and such, those those movies in that series are kind of can, can, could be considered. I don't know if literature is the right word, but certainly 
certainly pop culture. Right. I, I and and I don't know why when you talk genre, there's always three: sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. Fan, sci-fi and and horror because of Psycho, because of 2001, Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, Jaws. They kind of always have stayed around. Fantasy's never really gotten that foothold. You've had stuff like Lord of the Rings that's you know won awards and stuff, um, but then you also have things like Dragon Slayer. Yeah, or, <laughs> you know, or, or crawl, you know, <laughs> or crawl, which is which is. Let's be honest. The guys that made crawl admitted they were trying to rip off Star Wars, but I digress. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's fantasy for whatever reason has never caught on in Hollywood, and I don't know why. It just hasn't. It, like I said, they've had their Lord of the Rings. I think Dark Crystal was very well thought of in the eighties, you know, and right. uh, and, no, and due in no small part to the amazing genius that was Jim Henson. I think more than just the storyline. Uh, you know, uh, uh, quick, quick sidebar on Dark Crystal. I think that movie was truly ahead of its time. Uh, I, I mean, do. I do, too. I, one of the reasons why I think it's held up so well is probably because of the puppetry. But, you know, you watch the Netflix prequel and a lot of those characters are still puppets. So, you know, sure. it, it, sure. it speaks volumes that it was influenced so well that instead of going with a CGI fest for uh, a, another story, they still went with the the puppetry approach. I think another example from that era of fantasy not being strong like horror and sci-fi, but one movie hitting was Labyrinth. Once again, because of mm-hmm. the magic of Jim Henson's puppets and the greatness that was David Bowie. I think we can agree on that. And Jennifer Connelly was great as her first role. So, I mean, there were yeah. a lot of things going for it. Yeah, well, remember, there there were uh, two main co-stars in Labyrinth. There was uh, David Bowie and David Bowie's Package. Yes, yes, yes. That didn't hurt with didn't hurt with a certain demographic, did it? <laughs> but but we digress. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you brought up the the, the Acker Mansion earlier. Uh, I, it was one of those things on my bucket list. I was never able to get because, we, of course, we've lost Forrest. What was it about? You got about, his death about, date. about what, ten what? years. Yeah, it, yeah, it was uh, two thousand eight, I think. Yeah, but he actually had a home there in the Hollywood Hills. That was a small Spanish ranch kind of you know mini. Those mansion. It was just wasn't you wasn't huge, but it was bigger than your average home. The whole back end of it was dedicated to sci-fi, fantasy, and horror memorabilia. Stuff like original scripts, uh, screenplays, uh, p- p- posters, props, and costumes worn by people. Just amazing the amount of memorabilia that he had in his own personal collection. And he gave uh, you know scheduled tours. You could go online and. And I think before then you could do it by mail before the advent of the Internet set up a time and he would take you through it. I, I saw a documentary years ago with a um, with with a young filmmaker. I, I can't remember their name. They never became anybody of them going, you know, Forrest taking him through. And like he had um, a ring that Bella had worn in his Dracula role that he had given to Forrest and Forrest kept in it, that kind of stuff. That's mm-hmm. just, it's like to me what any just you know walls and walls of these posters and this guy flipping through all these these old movie posters it's a it's a geek's you know fantasy are you kidding me I would have and unfortunately I never got around to going to to go to that but you brought up that most of that collection's been been donated to where now uh, it's become the science fiction museum and hall of fame and I'm I'm assuming that his 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 estate has something to 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 do with that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is, and and it very well may have been something. I don't know this for sure; just one man speculation. That's that type of thing that probably got worked out when he was uh, still with us. You know, donated it probably. Yeah, 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 he probably put something in writing as far as where it was all going to go. 
And I mean, like he, he was 92 years old when he died. So by all accounts, he lived a long, full life. But he up until his, up until his last days, I think he was before he had some he had his health issues that took him from us. He was still giving these tours two or three mm-hmm. times a week. That's amazing. You know, it, it's he's the like you said, he's a Jimmy Olsen. He made friends with everybody. He knew everybody <laughs> and sci fi mm-hmm. and horror and fantasy. And he was friends with them and and they respected him. And he collected their memorabilia. I, I've made the I made the analogy earlier about you know him and Stan Lee. Uh, for me, Forrest J. Ackerman was as important to keeping the names of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy alive in the mainstream's conscious as much as Stan Lee was comics. In my opinion, you've done some research now. Or am, am I am I over overstating his importance, or do you think I'm about right there? No, 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 uh, not, not overstating at all. I, the best way I think I can put it is, you know how they have like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon for you know mm-hmm. movies and such. Not necessarily for movies, but I think when it comes like to geekery in general, there's no six degrees of Forrest Jackerman. It's it's the one degree or no degree. He knew everybody. <laughs> he <know>? did. <laughs> he did. I mean, when you think of, when you we we talked about the people he directly worked with. We haven't even talked about the people that have openly stated were influenced by him people like george lucas people like steven spielberg people like like john landis people like john carpenter people like like uh uh rob quentin tarantino robert rodriguez yeah. i uh, mean gene, gene simmons and kiss i mean once i heard that i'm like yeah. okay that makes sense yeah, that makes you sense. know <laughs> yeah I, if you want to go the music crowd i have there are several musicians i know uh, uh, he was I, I think i think he was friends with with michael jackson there you go mm-hmm. right danny, i mean he danny was, elfman yeah he, Danny Elfman, he was he was uh, uh, he was uh, loved by Rob Zombie and Alice Cooper, Marilyn Manson. No shocker with those three guys, I know, right? But uh, b- big friends with Kurt Hammett, the the guitarist from uh, Metallica, because because both are big fans of those classic Universal horror. In fact, there are several guitars that that Kurt plays on stage with that has the Bell Lugosi Frankenstein monster head on the body. You know, a picture of it. He's now getting out of just films and literature, and he's going into other areas of entertainment now where he's influencing people, and he's friends with them. And and, and I, I said it just a while ago, and I stand by it. There is there is not sci-fi, horror, and fantasy, which is essentially geekdom, I think, wrapped up in a ball. It doesn't exist in the way we know it without Forrest Jackman walking this earth and doing what he did, just my opinion. Yeah, and when you talk about movies and such, I mean – he has, if you go to IMDb, he has 79 acting credits. Now, granted, there are most of them, if not all of them, are essentially cameos. You know, they might might be kind of similar to how Stan Lee was worked into all the Marvel movies. You know, he, he didn't really mm. have any big parts, but usually what he did, he did was memorable. But yeah, 70, so you have 79 acting credits uh, in a career that goes back to... Basically the forties, so right, and mm-hmm. and I, I believe in a lot of those are a lot like Stan Lee's in the fact that he played himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he, he was, I, I he just, well, I just an amazing guy. I just I can't. I would kill to have been the guy who got to read early drafts by Isaac Isimov. That mm-hmm. alone, you know, he's probably there. I would dare say because he was he was Isimov's literary agent there. Some of Isimov's Isimov's later works. The first person outside of Isaac that ever read him was probably Forrest J. Ackerman. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine that as a sci-fi geek that you are? Yeah. Or, uh, you know, the it's kind of a famous uh, Stephen King story that uh, I, I think he was doing a signing or something like that. And 
Forrest showed up with a draft of a story that Stephen King wrote when he was 11. So somehow he managed to get a hold of a Stephen King story that King himself wow. had submitted and I guess it must have not gotten back to him and somehow Forrest got it and brought it back to him. I've heard that story before. It was one of those magazines we're talking about that that was the only way as a sci-fi or horror writer you could get your work out back then because it wasn't the industry that it is now. I want to say I've heard this, a similar story with him and Robert Zemeckis too, but I could be wrong. You know, Wouldn't shock me. Wouldn't shock me at all. He obviously was not the creative guy of all these other people we're talking about, but he might have been the muse. <laughs> you know, he might have been the inspiration because, you know, I just I just don't like I said, I don't think it exists with, with without him. And, and um, it's I need to find the name of that documentary, ladies and gentlemen, if I could find it, I will get I will find out where it is and get get Seth to put that in, in the show notes as well, because it was um, yeah. it was it, it was it was, a, it was a documentary just about fandom in general. And this guy getting to put on Bell Lugosi's ring as a horror guy, I'm going okay. I, I, I could I could die right now and be happy. I've worn Bell Lugosi's Dracula ring, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> that that would be like that would be like you getting to have a lightsaber duel with Alec Guinness. I think to put it in it, comparison, yeah, to you, yeah, you know? something, <laughs> something like that, or you and McGregor or Ray Park or whoever, you know. <laughs> Same type thing. I mean, Disney's doing a good job with the Star Tour stuff and the Star Wars, but it's not the same, you know, but I digress. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it, it is kind of staggering when you think about it, you know, that, you know, the, so we're, we're talking essentially 70 years, 70 or 80 years of, of contribution. But I think in, in the end, what he would probably want to be remembered as what everybody does is that he was, he was just a, a fan and a proponent of, the sci-fi fantasy, uh, you know, escape, I think, is probably the best way to, to put it. You know, the, you know, the literature that happens, it's, it's what got me into sci-fi and, and fantasy. And fantasy not as much as sci-fi, but, you know, the whole sci-fi and uh, robots and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a great uh, escape for the mind, I think, is probably the best way. I could put it. That's purely my my words. But I think that's what a lot of the sci-fi scholars think of it. And I think it's... What he helped prove could become a, a mainstream thing. I mean, am I, am I making sense with that that summary? Oh yeah, I think that relates back to the discussion groups he would go to that that Levey ran. You know, it's it's we weren't saying that he was a Satanist. We were just mm-hmm. saying he was an intellect. You know, and I think he and the kind of people that Levey was gathering at those discussions were. Uh, talking about deep stuff, like we said, metaphysics and esoterics and philosophy and religion and politics and sociology. Well, there's a lot of that, a lot of, a lot more of that in sci-fi, fantasy, and horror than non-geeks understand. And I completely agree with you. Most of us that are geeks that are attracted to that form of entertainment, it is an escapism for us, you know. But in that escapism, it allows us to think about things in a much deeper way in the real world. You know, it, it's um, I am the biggest popcorn movie fan. You'll, I mean, I'm I am fine with checking my brain in for 10 minutes or, you know, for a couple hours paying for you know, my overpriced Diet Coke and popcorn and watching something that doesn't really say a lot. Yes, I'm talking to you, MCU. OK, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, that's what I love about the stuff that Forrest was a proponent of Halloween. If you approach the movie Halloween, which we all know is my favorite movie. You can approach it that way and be very satisfied. It's an entertaining movie. You know, it's an hour and a half. It's got it's got, you know, good jump scares, suspenseful, it's well shot, well well fleshed out characters. 
uh, uh, it's exciting, and at the end, oh, there's there's that you know that that twist ending. Did Michael survive or not? We don't know, right? That's all entertaining, and that's great. But if you want to, you can take that and you can go home and think about some of the themes it brings up, and it gets a whole lot deeper than that. Do you agree? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, talking about this uh, IMDb page, I mean, how many other people on their resume, as far as what they've appeared in, can say that they've been in uh, King Kong, uh, the Kentucky Fried movie, <laughs> the Michael Jackson thriller video, and a Beverly Hills Cop movie? I mean, that, that's kind of all over the place there, as far as <laughs> as far as genres there. <laughs> And, and for what it's worth, people tend to uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Eddie Murphy's a huge fan of horror movies. Remember, he's the one who wanted to do Vampire in Brooklyn. That wasn't a Wes Craven mm-hmm. thing. That was an Eddie Murphy thing. You know, uh, he also liked sci-fi. I mean, it was bomb, but he did Pluto Nash. You know, yeah. I mean, I, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie Murphy's not much older than you and me. He's just a kid that grew up on Long Island in the 70s. He watched all these exploitation and, 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 and drive-in type movies. You know, he watched sci-fi and fantasy and horror. You don't think he wasn't a fan of that stuff? And, you know, so he probably heard Forrest's name at some point, too, and said, hey, we need to get this dude in this movie, you know? <laughs> right. And even then, I mean, obviously I don't want to get sidetracked on Eddie Murphy, but The Golden Child had some horror elements in it. It was just, a, it was just PG horror elements. Yeah, well, and it had 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 one another another like subgenre of all this stuff we're talking about, chop sake, kung fu movies, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's another smaller niche part of of uh, you know geekdom, right? I mean, right. And here we go in the uh, <laughs> the late nineties, early two thousands. He, he's credited as part of horror kung fu theater. I mean, that show sounds like it would have <laughs> you all over it. <laughs> oh man, that's that's right up my alley, man. That's right up my alley. I mean, it's it's. If you don't think Kung Flu is, is, is influential to sci-fi and geekdom, I have two words for you. The Matrix. Mm. That's a high-end Hong Kong action movie with a sci-fi twist. Are we, are we in agreement on that? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I don't want to speak for the dead, but I, I'm pretty sure Forrest probably liked that movie too because it had stuff <laughs> like, yeah, I get this, I get this. Yeah, it's totally up my alley, you know? <laughs> so anything else that you wanted to add before we uh, wrap up here? No, no, just uh, just, just like I said, if you don't know who Forrest is, realize if you're a geek, he probably had his finger in, in either creating something you liked or influenced something that you liked. He's that important. Look him up. He's a fascinating man to, to look into. And like you said, I think at the end of the day, the thing he would want to be most remembered for, he was a fan. He was a supporter. He was an ardent supporter of the art form that is what we call geekdom now, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's why we're able to do podcasts like this now is because of people like him that stuck up for it. Absolutely. So that's going to wrap up this edition of the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. And we'll have a few more shows coming up here as we are just mere days away from Halloween as of this recording. And if you're hearing us for the first time, we are actually part of a family of shows over at geekville radio if you seek out geekvilleradio.com or if you do that searching in the podcatcher of your choosing we should be there because uh, we're all over apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher tune in iheart radio all uh spotify all the all the major ones and you can drop us a line either at the geekville radio site or on social media at geekville radio and uh, train if anybody wants to uh, uh yell at you about anything you brought up in this show where can they find you 
I'm always available to be reached on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, our sister uh, podcast, Examining the Dead, that I host. We now have a Facebook page as well. I'm a mod on that. You can reach me there as well. Uh, you can uh, just, just just put it when you get to Facebook, put in a search for Examining the Dead podcast. It should come up. I'm also available to talk to on Spotify, also at Crazy Train underscore JB. I've been pressing it all month, but I have my Halloween themed uh, playlist that's on there. I'll get Seth to put a link to it in the show notes as well. I want to wish everybody a, a safe and happy Halloween. Hope Be sure to check out Wednesday. We are going to have a, a very different short examining the dead. Uh, if those of you that have been following us on Facebook, you know that through the month of Halloween or through the month of October, in honor of Halloween, I've been posting one trailer of a lesser-known horror movie every day of the month. All I'm going to do it all the way through the 31st, so we're up to, as we record this, 28. Seth, we're going to record that, and you're going to post everything. It'll have 1 through 30, correct? And people, mm-hmm. sh- people should be able to check that out on Wednesday, the day before Halloween. Check it out, and it'll get you up to where we are, and then make sure you tune into the Facebook page for the last trailer on Halloween Day. Little spoiler. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I will just say it is a more current movie, and it is my absolute favorite horror movie of the last 10 years, if that gives anybody some excitement. So check it out. And if not, have a safe and and happy Halloween. It's my favorite time of year. Hope you all can enjoy it because there's a lot of geekdom that can be enjoyed during Halloween. All right. With that said, we're going to uh, shut down the power here in the Geekville Radio Studios, and we'll be back again very shortly. Thank you, folks, for listening. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren podcast, family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved. Also on his IMDb page, are The Devil Ant in 1999 and Devil Ant 2 in 2002. In The Devil Ant, Forrest is credited as Man Attacked by the Devil Ant. And in Devil Ant 2, he's credited as Man Who Survived the Attack by the Devil Ant. (laughs) (laughs) So he wasn't a red shirt. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 